Hello, everyone. Um, welcome to this um, Trend Detection Live session about Truth About Predictive Maintenance, our regular session we have. I think it's once a month, isn't it? But as you can see, our regular Napford is here again, but we are joined by another guest as well, Jonathan Bonner. So Jonathan does everything that salespeople do, but has also the real world experience, etc. So he's that next layer of knowledge. And me and John have spent countless hours in cars, planes, trains, from on the way to and the way back from events discussing the kind of topics we discussed today. So if we can't fill half an hour with this topic, then something's gone very wrong. Exactly, exactly. Um, so first we'll just put out for the session, and we do have a chat function, so if you want to add any questions at any point, we'll, um, I'll feed them through to Nat and Jonathan, so that'll be good. Um, but I guess, first of all, we should cover, actually cover what the topic we're covering today, which is around demonstrating um, PDM value in the short and longer term. And I know we've, we've all, we've had lots of conversations around this and there's lots of, um, lots of talk around this as well. But I guess just to get your views on that, first of all, I guess your opening statements, gentlemen, I guess is the best way to put it. So maybe Nat again, you want to lead us off? Yeah, it's an interesting distinction. So, you know, the idea about the difference between short term benefits and long term benefits. And you could, you could say, well, why, why, why is there going to be a difference? And we can discuss those things. But for me, it's because my view is twofold. One, when you start a project, there's certain things which happen quickly, which aren't about people, um, that you can look at and derive value from. But long term, it's much more about people than the usage of the product. And that's where you get that second, probably more mature level of value from. We can dig into those things. And I think that the other metric for that is thinking of them in terms of passive and active. So there's active things that happen in the application, cases that it raises that you react to that have a type of outcome. And then there's the passive stuff that happens, which is where well, you don't have cases, but you, you do have a service provided on an asset. And that gives you a different type of knowledge, which can change behavior and have a whole different set of, of value and outcome. So for me, they're the things we can drill into. John? Yeah, absolutely. And you need to be able to infer success, infer value very early on um, and still tell them about the stuff that's going to happen over time as the, as the people start using it, as their teams start to engage. Um, how their their approaches, their practices will change over time, um, but you still need to be able to give a certain level of confidence in the the success and value um, from an, a very early stage, even before starting the project, before you really know what's uh, what is what and what it is you can expect to achieve. I guess between between the yeah, I was going to say between between the short and long term. I mean, what sort of checkpoints are there in there to to show that value? I guess, or how, or how does Sensei sort of approach that? Well, when you, when you look, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll take, I'll take uh, the first uh, stab at it anyway. So when we're looking at value, um, which drives a pro uh, project, there are, when you implement predictive maintenance, there are three main points that you should be looking at. So <clears throat> your production, um, uh, increase in productions, for example, um, reduction in maintenance activities, so whether that's breakdowns and plan maintenance. <clears throat> and then, you know, uh, increase, I guess, is the third one. But um, you need to try and infer those. You need to try and say, what is it that we can potentially help you save here as a, a monetary return? So 
everyone is looking for a return and rightfully so so you need to try and infer that value first of all as the first success criteria you know is this going to be a successful project for you in a monetary monetary terms yeah and it, exactly it needs to be measurable in the short term and one you know the the reason if you go back to where we were from a marketing perspective three years ago us and probably other people in the market we were very much about downtime talking about reduction in downtime um and the reason for that i think we've discussed this before is because as a metric it's much more available and, and more readily measurable um you, you know john lister you can you can work with a company to derive value and stop putting things in place some of the things that happen later on are much harder to measure and therefore don't make a good a good stick for deciding whether or not a project is working in the first instance or a deployment let's not call it a project but an engagement and part of part of the process that me and jonathan go through is making sure at the beginning of a project that we've described some of these things and agreed with a client which metrics we should be using and when we should be using them short and long term um you know you can make an assumption that a client because they're buying a solution that they'll have an idea of these things but they don't always quite often they'll they'll be hoping that predictive maintenance will bring some benefits but they haven't really focused on what they are um, and you need them to agree at the beginning of a cycle what those things should be so a you can agree that they're reasonable um, and achievable and that secondly um, you you actually have something in place that you can decide is a successful measure um, I mean we can we can come on to it but I think there's a there's a feedback loop and it's not just for the clients it's for us as well a lot we we become more and more brazen in telling people how big their projects should be because we know that the kind of success that you want in the short term can't be achieved on the small numbers of assets you know you're not you're not trying to improve overall um, efficiencies right from the offset and you're not expecting to have big change in the maintenance process but even if you're looking just to um, measure a return based on reduction in downtime or you know observing some negative events that could have happened but didn't because the cases we've raised even with those if you're if you're only looking at a very small number of assets you can have much opportunity to describe those kind of outcomes and measure them um, and extrapolate some great value so it's always important to, to work out what those those short-term goals are and then have a project that's going to be able to deliver against them but to do that to be able to work that out in the beginning there's a lot of information gathering required you know you need to have a good understanding you need to assess the clients and assess their their situation so what maintenance strategies they currently have um their data availabilities um, you know what what systems do they have in place their assets the operating complexities <clears throat> the, the dependencies between um, assets and different assets and lines and so on um, there's a whole bunch of things that you need to assess first to say, all right, out of a potential 20 things, what is achievable in the short term? What is it that you can learn? Um, and then what is it that we can aspire to at a later stage? What is it that you're working towards? Um, you know, if we look at the absolute thing of affecting a plan maintenance strategy, for example, whether that's making it more efficient, reducing the, the total amount of hours, reducing the amount of spares you are using for your plan maintenance activities to assess that type of success 
<clears throat> will take a long time. And to have an effect on that will take a while. It's not something that you're going to achieve after six months because there's lots of things that need to happen. You need to have confidence within the systems. Your, your teams need to be confident in using a, a sensor, for example. Uh, you, you need to, to see that the data quality is, is good enough to affect your plan maintenance strategies. Um, you need to, in a structured way, <clears throat> look at what is it that you can affect by having extra information on your assets uh, condition. So there's a lot of things that you need to assess before actually saying, okay, yes, this is achievable. Um, and even then, once you've done that assessment, some things aren't achievable in the short term, like affecting your plan maintenance activity. This is something we would recommend doing uh, at about the 12 month mark. Once you've had 12 months of using the application, using, getting to understand the, the information, you can then start to make very good decisions around what it is you can affect for the following year ahead. Yeah, so that's the kind of passive feedback, isn't it? That's, that's trusting in the system, which takes a period of time to get to, having enough assets and enough trust that you can make decisions to not take preventative actions because you know that things are gonna be okay. But John, you mentioned that when you were talking through, John, you mentioned a number of things like um, spares, etc., and we whistled through them quite quickly. And actually, it might be useful to to actually go through them properly. Though some of the more long term benefits and describe what and why. So, so, so which should we start with that? Why why would predictive maintenance give people um, some benefit when it comes to inventory and spares? Oh. Better maintaining your machines at the right time, so stopping those unexpected failures. And by doing small corrective actions, for example, like greasing a bearing instead of replacing it. Uh, by taking better care of these the assets, the components, you are extending the lifetime of, big, of the assets as a whole and machines as a whole. So you don't need to replace the um, perfectly good components uh, just on a time-based interval. You can re replace them rather when it is absolutely required, when it is necessary, when it has reached its age. <clears throat> so that's one of the reasons. But being able to do better maintenance on these assets, um, you can extend the lifetime of, of your machines and not have to replace good parts. Uh, you do find industries where you still need to replace parts because it, uh, that feeds into a, a quality uh, factor. So seals. For example, in an FMCG environment, you'll need, still need to replace them because, because of quality. You don't want uh, to have little bits breaking off and going into the product. But <clears throat> that is just one of the use cases. There are still many, many, many other components in all industries that are getting changed um, because it's now 6, 12, 24 months since it was um, installed, and it's now time to change them. And these couldn't run for another few years quite often. And there's benefits also, isn't there, in, in knowing what you need to have in store and where you need to have it? Oh, yeah. Quite often, if you don't have visibility of condition, if you don't have something like predictive maintenance where you can make a good decision, um, companies are spending huge amounts on keeping spares on site because just in case it does fail, in case this motor or the gearbox or the pump or whatever it is does fail, they need to have a replacement readily available. Um, and these, these individual components, individual assets could be um, in the lower thousands. They could be tens or hundreds of thousands. So a company could be spending millions annually 
on just having a huge stock in uh, a huge inventory in stock just in case something happens. Whereas if you have greater visibility, the need for that is, is much less. <clears throat> you know, the need for, also the need for emergency spares transportation is less um, because you'll be able to have warning time, planning time to, to know that something's going to happen, know that you need to repair or replace a, an asset or a component. Um, and with that better planning time, you can get, get things shipped in as necessary rather than keeping hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of stock just in case something happens. And keep in the same multiple locations. Presumably you can, with better visibility, you can ship things correctly to the right place for when they're going to be needed. But actually, that's, that brings up another area that we, you know, if you think about when we're presenting to clients, we, we focus quite heavily on the, the avoidance of downtime because that's the, the early stuff. Um, better maintenance approaches because that's, that's what we want people to move to. So that's the passive and active. Um, but at the end of that, that kind of chart, we talk about um, sustainability. And candidly, I think probably I feel slightly less comfortable discussing that because there are more degrees of separation between what we do and the outcome. That doesn't mean that it's any less valid. I think that, you know, because we're, from a sales perspective, we're trying to get that immediate impact of a, a story and a deployment. Um, you, you might want to sort of, signpost that there are those things that can come later on but maybe we should maybe we should have the opportunity to talk about them a bit so for, for me i think if we look at things like the mining industry where we have clients clearly they have a big focus and need to have a big focus on sustainability that's nothing to do with predictive maintenance they generically need to have a big focus on sustainability and have public targets um, and public targets which they're talking about how they're going to achieve you know this is fundamentally important to the human race currently. And, and those organizations that we work with where um, they have a big impact, which they can, and therefore they can play a big part of changing it, like mining, um, need to do so. And we talk about sustainability. And if, if someone was going to ask us how we impact that, I think we need to acknowledge a couple of things. So for example, in the mining industry, I know that we've talked to clients where they talk about having, you know, 100% of effort, probably, 85 to 90% of that effort will be related to electricity, power supply, where they get it from, um, how they source it, et cetera. But that doesn't mean that vendors like Sensei don't play an important part of that last 15%. Um, however, I mean, John, what's your view on how predictive maintenance then has an impact upon sustainability? What's the, what's the route between what we do and that outcome? Transportation of spares, which increases the amount of carbon used by 80 times or something like that. That's, uh, that may be a very wrong or incorrect uh, statistic, but it's something something ridiculous like that. Anyway, so <clears throat> sensei and predictive maintenance can affect sustainability, especially around uh, your environmental assets, assets that are there specifically to assist with uh, combating your your carbon footprint, let's say. So having a higher reliability of those, <clears throat> making sure that they are running effectively, efficiently, um, that they don't fail, especially when you need them. Um, they are, the uptime is there, does play, a, does play a huge part. Okay, I imagine just, just yeah, I'm sure there are. And smooth production processes and predictability, 
etc. Um, we seem to have lost our host. Let's crack on with Alan. Can you still stand? I know. I'm, I'm still here. <laughs> I, I, I'm still here. I, I, I'm still here, but you don't really need a host today. I'm just letting you two. I'm just sitting back and <laughs> listening. In. I'm not listening myself. But. Um, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just sit. Go on, Mark. No, no, no. You go. I was going to say the, the other area that we, that we talk about that we perhaps don't explore as much as we could in, in initial engagements is around safety. Um, you know, every every environment that we go to will have some statistics around safety, um, time since last negative event, that sort of thing. Um, and of course, maintenance can be a, a, a dangerous task in, in certain environments. Um, so John, I'm going to put you on spot again and ask you what you think the, the causal link is between a good PDM program um, and the impact on, on safety. I guess one of the the biggest impact I would say would be not needing to go to the machine and fault find, not having to go to assets or <clears throat> wider operating and moving uh, bits of machinery and have to now investigate fault find, remove panels, make sure that it's um, locked out, so that there's no electrical supply, that the valves have been shut off. There's a lot of things, a lot of safety procedures in place for a workman, um, a maintenance engineer to actually go and fault find within a machine. So removing that need or removing the amount of time required to be around an asset doing fault finding, for example, removes or reduces the, the, uh, the safety impacts, let's say. Um, also, knowing what it is you need to do means you have a direct uh, focus on what you're doing while you're there. So you know exactly what needs to be locked out, you know exactly what the procedure is that you need to take, you know exactly what the corrective action is. Um, you can go and implement that, um, and once it's done, move away. So uh, the biggest one is knowing what it is you need to do and removing uh, the unnecessary amount of time spent uh, you know, inside of a machine with your, your, your limbs and extremities at risk, let's say. Yeah, good. So, and I guess they're the ones that we're, le we're less likely to have an individual metric about. We're, we're, we're feeding into um, a bunch of efforts that are made to improve safety, a bit like the sustainability. Um, I think for me, you know, when we're looking, when we're talking to clients about um, return on investment or the kind of benefits that they get short and long term, the hardest, the hardest factor is the fact that you're trying to measure things that don't happen. In all the cases, all the things that we do are um, they're not about a qualitative or quantitative addition of a new thing. They're about the, the removal, unless you want to measure uptime, in which case you can say we've increased your uptime by X percent, point, point something percent. Um, you know, that first staging post when we're talking about avoidance of downtime, it takes a, a leap of faith in a way, doesn't it, to get clients to believe and understand in the impact that we're having. Um, because as we've discussed before, a failure, frustrating as it might be for a manufacturing process, has um, some describable elements to it, um, some hero journeys in, in fixing it. 
there's a, an event, something bad happens, um, some people get involved and fix it, and then things are back up and running, and someone gets slapped on the back and congratulated for job well done. Whereas in the universe that we impact, um, the opposite happens. Something very dull happens. We raise a case a long time before um, a negative outcome has occurred, and it gets discussed in a, in a um, session. Somebody might go and investigate. They might go and grease something. And that's a very, very boring story. So you you need to have the ability to get your audience, in our case, or the client, to agree and discuss with you and understand that that those those reactions to those cases have an impact. And it's in a way, until you can consolidate the change over a period of time and notice that things have, have shifted from one state to another, and in and of themselves, they're quite difficult to get people to have a hallelujah moment about, aren't they? Someone will go to the machine, have a look at it, and say it's absolutely fine, nothing wrong with it. We, we've inspected it, couldn't find anything. Um, and then another notification will get raised, and they, they repeat the process, um, and they start to get quite frustrated, and then something goes wrong. <laughs> um, and it's a learning moment, but it's, it's, a, it's, yeah, it's trying to raise that awareness to say, even if you can't tell that something is going wrong by a visual inspection, um, you know, the data is telling you this. There is evidence to support the, the, the solutions claim. Uh, you know, we, and it's, it's quite hard to also then think about how do we put success criteria around something that may or may not happen. Um, you may get notified. You may go and inspect. You may do something small like creasing a bearing and nothing happens from it. Um, you've averted the, the, the bad ending. Um, or... It does fail, and then, you know, in a sense, you, you, we get seen like we haven't done our job properly because it failed. So you need to try and uh, cater for both, uh, both events, really. And in fact, now, yeah, I was going to say we've we've recently come up with um, five five categories of success criteria um, that are available in the short and long term. Well, those five categories, I'm just trying to remember what they, they are. Let's bring them up. Well, actually, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain why we put those categories in place. Um, it was really because all the things we're just discussing are available, in a sense, at different times. Um, and rather than just say to people, here are the benefits you get from the system, it's useful to explain to people how and when those benefits are A, going to be available, and B, measurable. Um, and so the idea of... Oh, yeah, yeah, those, yeah those, those categories, by the way, are delivery process, so working with Sensei, technical, so the fullness of the deployment, and cases, those are your alerts that get raised, so the relevance of these alerts and cases, the usage, so a measure of adoption by the, the, the teams using the application, and then outcomes, the impact of actions based on notifications. Yeah, and it's, uh, the, the, it's funny, isn't it, because we talk about benefits. You know, obviously, we can talk about in a pure sense of what is the benefit of using Sensei as a solution, but there's also the question of what is the benefit of working with Sensei. And a lot of the benefits of working with Sensei come before the outcome bit, so you know, ease of use, 
fantastic team to work with, really good domain knowledge. You know, so you'll have a, a, a brilliant methodology for implementing. So they're things that um, perhaps we haven't touched on much today, but they are indeed benefits in the short and long term. Um, but they're not related to the outcome. And the reason that we segmented things like that was because we need we need people to be a bit more obsessed about the outcome and slightly less obsessed about the getting there stuff because people spend a lot of time measuring the getting there, um, which doesn't really instruct them much about the future of using the product. Um, so things like delivery, technical um, cases, are good things to have an eye on for KPIs. Um, but outcomes are really what you're paying for. The product is the outcomes, and the outcomes are reliant on people doing something, having considered the case. So there, yeah, there, I'm... Sorry, I was going to say, the amount of times we've heard feedback from within weeks um, of having the system live, having data coming into the system live, uh, the feedback is that our maintenance teams had never understood or never had had never had had as much information around the process, around these machines and assets um, as they do now. Um, their knowledge of what is happening on the shop floor now is vastly different than a few weeks, a few months ago. Um, and that's, again, not an outcome, but it is a very important factor. It's a, it is success yeah. um, in one way, shape or form. Yeah. I would, I mean, I would argue that you can include that as an outcome. You could have it as a, a way of describing if you could come up with a KPI for how well you know your assets. But I agree, that's an important facet, a kind of side effect of using the system well. Suddenly you get to know assets in a way that you haven't previously. I think actually there's often you find with clients as well that they're, they may think that a predictive maintenance solution is, is entirely prescriptive and that it will just um, print out work orders and that somehow that will dumb down the maintenance team, but that's entirely untrue. The, the process of a product like Sensei is to focus your attention on the things that need looking at, and that's where your expertise then comes in. You know, you're not, you, you might develop with us a system that works raises work orders, but on the whole, there is um, a discussion that needs to ensure around cases, and all, all we're doing is putting people in the right place. And allowing to have those have the conversations about the right assets and make decisions, um, and get to know those assets better as a result of it. Yeah, even when I'm when I'm helping clients define success criteria, uh, one of the questions I ask is, how do you want your teams to be impacted by predictive maintenance? You know, because it's the human element as well that is extremely important. Um, <clears throat> you know, sometimes you want to en enable a team, you want to empower them, give them the right information. Sometimes it's got to do with uh, upskilling a, 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 a non-experienced workforce. Uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of outcomes, but really you need to address the, the human factor, the resource factor, how the teams are going to be affected by this, um, and not just the, the business side. Yeah, absolutely. And that's and that's probably a good point to finish on, isn't it? That there are a sort of smorgasbord of things that you can try and achieve with predictive maintenance, but what's really important is you agree at the beginning what they are. What is it that you want as a good outcome at the beginning and long term? And then people like us can help to define, first qualify that it's achievable, then define a project to make it happen. Absolutely. Um, 
So yeah, we have come to the end. That's, that's gone really, really quick. Now, I've not really said too much, which is pr- probably a good thing. Um, <laughs> as I was just wondering, both of you, if there's any sort of final takeaways, I guess, on the overarching topic of today about demonstrating value, you want to just just end on just quickly before we finish. Any final thoughts? For me, it's yeah. Have a look. Carry Sorry. on. Keep on. I was going to say, yeah, um, you need to make sure that whatever your success criteria is, it is clearly defined before you start the project. You need to know what the outcomes are, what you, what it is you want to achieve, um, and then have a realistic view on what is achievable in the short term and the long term. Um, and, you know, that's not something that we can throw onto you. It's not something that you can, well, the client can necessarily define themselves. It is a, a process. It's a collaboration between the two organizations to say, this is what can be achieved, and these are the timescales. Um, does this now make sense to continue? Exactly. Trust trust the vendor. Trust us to tell you what the long-term things are. Don't be frustrated or impatient about the long-term. Get the short-term bits right with an eye on what you can achieve in the long-term, and it'll come. Fantastic. Really good way to sum up. So, yeah, no, thank you, Nat and Jonathan, for your thoughts and discussion today. It's been really good. Um, thank you for everyone for joining. And for listening, if you're listening to the podcast after. So, yeah, thank you, everyone, and we'll be back again soon.